1: It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Welcome to Rico Bronia. The New York Met express train continues to roll on. They win three consecutive games against the Cincinnati Reds, really in dominating fashion. They never trailed in this series. They played 27 innings against the Cincinnati Reds and led in 25 of the 27 innings. They led immediately in game one when Marte hit the home run. They led immediately in game three. It took them a couple of innings in game two before they went ahead in the third inning. So this was pure domination. And before we talk about this series and discuss this New York Met team is arguably the greatest Met team we've seen since 1986, I'm going to do something that's going to surprise you, but I really feel compelled to do it. And that's prop up the Cincinnati Reds. And the reason I'm going to say that is I think a lot of us may have looked at the last three days, probably maybe the first three times you've seen the Reds since the Mets played them a few weeks ago, maybe the only times you've seen the Reds, you look at their record and you say, well, they suck. They're terrible. Of course the Mets swept them. I want you to understand something. The Cincinnati Reds came into this series as a hot baseball team. Now that may not make any sense, but it's true. They won two out of three against the Brewers in Milwaukee before they got here. They won two out of three in Miami before they got here. They won two out of three at home against the Orioles before they got here. Hoff's going to like this. You may have remembered they won two out of three against the New York Yankees not too long ago. You like that, Pete, right? I, I do like
0: that a lot. And if you know, Not for nothing, but the Mets broadcast watching it you know, on SNY every day. They kept on hyping up every stat possible that was a positive for the for the Reds. Like runners in scoring position, I think they were like top in the league.
1: Yeah, yeah. They're a, which by the way, I did not know until I saw SNY put that up. Like a two eighty clip with runners <laughs> in scoring position. And, and look, I understand that they had Justin Dunn called up to make a start. They had Mike Miner make a start, who's terrible. They had T.J. Zoik who I remember with the Blue Jays a few years ago, I didn't even know he still existed. So yes, the Reds didn't exactly throw up, you know, three big guns against him. They did trade away Luis Castillo. I know there needs to be some context to the way the Reds have played, but they're not just this team that gets their ass kicked every time they've gone out there. They're actually fascinating because they got off to that abysmal start. People were comparing them to the 62 Mets and they've actually been a 500 team for like the last month and a half. But really, over the last couple of weeks, they've been good. Since July 7th, they were 16-9 and coming into this series. And it it, it sounds absurd to think that because we just saw them play and we saw the arms they were throwing at. And again, they threw out the three weakest arms they could find. Two kids they literally just called up and Mike Miner, who's had a terrible season. So I I do want to supply the context to it, but I just wanted to point out, like, We should not apologize for what the Mets did over the last three days. First of all, even if the Reds came in here on an 18-game losing streak, you shouldn't apologize. You got to beat the teams in front of you. But the Reds have actually been a better baseball team than their record indicates. But I think the most impressive thing, and it really started from game one of this series, was that coming off the emotion of the five-game series against Atlanta, winning four out of five the way they did, uh, almost a packed house every single night, certainly a playoff electricity every single night, it would have been easy to just fall flat. It really would have. And not that we would have sat here making excuses the next day, but it would have at least been understandable. The Mets have played great baseball, really, since losing those first two games out of the break against San Diego. Eventually, they're going to cool off. And logic would have said, yeah, they'll cool off against the Reds. Why the hell not? And they didn't. And I think the most important thing that happened was the first inning of game one. Because two things occurred that I thought set the tone for this entire series. Number one, Chris Bassett's on the mound and dominates the top of the first inning. Like, bing, bing, boom, couple of strikeouts, get your asses on the bench. And then immediately, like literally five pitches into the bottom of the first inning, Starling Marte deposits one in the left field seats. And right out of the gate, the Mets are up 2-0, and even I was feeling cocky. Like, they're going to win this game. They're going to leave no doubt. And... They did a decent job against Justin Dunn. Justin Dunn's a former Met prospect. He was initially in the uh, the Edwin Diaz trade, which he's sort of forgotten about. And then he was traded to Cincinnati, I think, for Jesse Winker. The Reds and the Mariners made a bunch of trades together. But the Mets were able to at least slowly tack on against Justin Dunn. 2 nothing game becomes a 3 nothing game. Chris Bassett actually starts putting guys on base every single inning, but he's able to really work through the damage. And... I loved watching Bassett want to continue in this game and Buck be willing to let him continue in this game. And look, keep this in mind. A Monday night against the Cincinnati Reds is not going to be a playoff indicator. Uh, Buck's going to manage very differently in October. I don't necessarily think he's going to push Chris Bassett to get to the eighth inning in an October game when in the previous five innings, there have been guys on base every single inning. But I think over the course of 162, when you have a bullpen in which a bunch of guys are used the day before. And the day before that, when you played a doubleheader, you want to have a day in which you only use one guy out of your bullpen. That's nice to have. But the only way you're going to do that is if you get really good starting pitching and a starting pitcher that's able to go deep into games. And to watch Chris Bassett throw 114 pitches, here's what's funny to me. Chris Bassett throws 114 pitches, and yet we have been trained like dogs to say, oh, my God, he threw 114 pitches, as if that's crazy, when the truth is it shouldn't be crazy. Like, Pete and I are not that old. We remember guys throwing 125 pitches. I mean, it's not. Uh, I mean, Levon
0: Levon Hernandez, I mean, that was a normal outing for him.
1: Yeah, yeah, And, and we're not talking about 40 years ago. You know, we're not bringing up 1967 of you. I'm bringing up like 2012, 2015, yeah. like guys would throw 125 pitches, maybe even 130. So, the fact that 114 is like this, oh my god, he extended himself. is kind of funny to me, but that's how we've been trained, man.
0: Well, that, and that's that's what bothers me too about like the whole idea of of the the getting rid of the complete game and all that stuff, like the 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 mentality. And I don't want to blame it on the pitchers. But it's like it's almost like the catering of the staff around them. It's they're they're a a high commodity. We need to make sure that they're they're, they're our asset. We need to hold on to them. We need to make sure that they're healthy. So let's make sure that we have them and dominate whatever they're available rather than be like, let them go out there, pitch nine innings. And that's and that would
1: be a but but what's crazy is like that's a valuable asset. You know, Chris Bassett, I look at Bassett's season. It's kind of an interesting year. He's got a record of nine and seven, not that records matter. His ERA is about three and a half, so solid. But what jumps at me the most about Chris Bassett is his ability to pitch one inning more than what maybe most normal pitchers would pitch. Like, I think there's been a handful of outings, sometimes not even in his best performances, where Chris Bassett is mediocre and he goes six. And for most other guys, it's probably like a five-inning performance. And I thought Monday night was similar to that, where that's a six, seven-inning performance, and he somehow gave you eight. And so if I had to define Chris Bassett's 2022, I would say that that has been a consistent trait of his, that even in good performances and in mediocre performances, he tends to pitch one inning more than most other pitchers in baseball would do with that exact same performance. If that makes any sense, what I'm trying to say about him, like he is in one extra inning guy in every performance he makes. And I remember there was a game earlier this season and I, I'm spacing on the opponent and how it happened and maybe the Marlins on like a Saturday where Bach didn't have a bullpen available and he pushed Chris Bassett and it backfired and he gave up some kind of big home run and the Mets ended up losing the game. I think it was, for some reason, I think it was the game that Gerard Incarnacion hit the Grand Slam of the Miami Marlins. I think it like I'd have Sunday. to go to my... I
0: think it was a Sunday. Was that a Sunday? Of, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's right, because that was really bittersweet at the end of that series.
1: Yeah, I could I could literally sit here with my scorecard and go back and find the game. I don't know if it's that interesting.
0: But And, but, but, and, and here's the thing, too. Look, just one thing I want to piggyback off of is the, the fact that Bassett was able to go that extra inning on, on Monday... But I feel like that was the story of the, of the the starting staff this 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 series. Like cause Carrasco pushed it. Even Tywan Walker didn't seem like he really had it that well today, but was able to push it an extra, you know, get that sixth inning in there. And that, that was enough. That was good.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. What, what was also happened in this game, which I think is gonna be forgotten about, is Lindor's had a great year, and we'll discuss him in a minute about what this season has turned into. He hit a freaking home run, and it was robbed by that schmuck Albert Almora who had, like, one hit in 117 at-bats as a Met. But he was good defensively, so I can't take too much of a shot at him for that. I mean, that was the one thing he actually did well. Um, The second game of this series, though, that was where Carlos Carrasco comes out, pitches into the seventh inning. The Mets break through when Lindor hits that two-run home run as a right-hand hitter. Jeff McNeil hits a bomb of a home run. They get a big hit from Jeff McNeil later in the game. Darren Ruff breaks the game open. And the highlight of this game, though, was the fact that new acquisition, Michael Givens, had to come in in a big spot. Not a throwaway spot, which most of his performances have been, but a big spot. I mean, I get it. Seventh inning against the Reds. Maybe you don't consider it a big spot, but it's a close game. He came into a two-on, two-out up by two runs, facing the Red second-place hitter, Nick Senzel. And Michael Givens, to his credit, came in and struck him out. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean I think he's going to do that to Austin Riley in the National League Championship Series or Mookie Betts in the National League Championship Series, but it was at least nice to see Michael Givens come in in a close game, in a big spot, at least in a situation that he may see in a pennant race or in a postseason game. Tying run on first base, lead run at the plate. Look, Michael Givens comes in. He could very easily give up a three-run home run. We're looking at this game completely different. Now, I have a confidence the Mets will win anyway because they'll just beat the crap out of the Reds' bullpen and come back. But in that moment, there was a little bit of question. Hey, uh, maybe maybe this game's going to look a little different. And to Givens' credit, he comes in. He gets a big strikeout. Trevor May's inning was very, very shaky. I'm willing with Trevor May to give him a handful of performances before I start to judge him more than I already would. And I, I Look, I judge him on the fact I don't think he's that good, but he is coming off a long stint on the injured list. I'm not looking for him to dominate right out of the gate. It hasn't happened. He's, he hasn't been bad, but he's been at least up and down, and he was very up and down in his performance in the eighth inning, but he was able to get through it. I mean, he threw 187 pitches, basically, in the one inning, but he's at least able to get through it. So it was nice to at least see him find a way to not implode and the Mets take the second game of this series. And it's like you're sitting back with your feet up saying, ah, oh, this is freaking great. We're just going to keep racking up wins. Yeah, just, just keep rocking them up. And then the game on Wednesday, the game where I skipped work to go, and I can't tell you how many people told me that while I was at Citi Field today. You're not working today, were you? You're skipping work? Yes, I'm skipping work. Frickin' Yankees played a four o'clock game. I'm gonna do an hour and a half show and miss Mets Reds on a Wednesday afternoon? Hell no. Plus, I brought my oldest son to the ballpark. He went to Kitty Field twice, baby. Twice. Almost got one out of the park. So proud of that little man. Ah, but this was fun. See, the third game of this series was a lot of fun because there's nothing better. You know this, Hoff. When you take your kid to the ballpark, you want to watch the Mets just kick ass because you don't want to deal with stress. I don't want my son to see me stressing out over a Met game. I just want to sit back and say, look at us kicking ass. 6 nothing in the third inning, 2 nothing after one, 5 nothing after two. That qualified as a good old-fashioned Wednesday afternoon at the park. No stress. You want to go to Kitty Field in the fifth inning? Fine. We're kicking their ass anyway. That's my kind of day at the ballpark, bro.
0: Well, let me ask you a question, though, because I did notice something strange about today. What? Not not only that you skipped work. Did, it, did anybody go, does
1: Spike know you're here?
0: But besides <laughs> that, I noticed uh, you weren't sitting in your normal seats. What was up with that? That is
1: a true statement. So uh, I usually sit behind the plate. I'm very spoiled. I, whenever I go to a Mech game <laughs> on the road, at home, I always want to sit behind the plate because I think it's the best view. And I don't even want to be that close. I want to be you know, a little bit high up. Not too high up, not the Euchre seats, but a little bit of height. To me, that's the best place to watch a game. And Jed has asked me, he's gone to a lot of games this year, this man. This little boy, man. He is, I'm spoiling him the way my dad spoiled me going to games. Uh, he's been to like 14 games this year. And he said, I know it's nuts, right? But he's learning. It's crazy. Like, he's learning these little things. Like he said to me the other day, this is a great observation. Because he's scoring games now. And he says, I don't understand why the catcher isn't batting ninth. for I forget which team the Mets were playing. And I said, I don't know what you mean. He's like, I thought all the catchers bat ninth. I said, no, that's just the, that's just the, the Mets best. with Tomas yes.
0: Nito. And I brother James McCann, too, should be there, but yes. yeah, Well, he is.
1: I mean, basically, the Mets' automatic ninth-place hitter is the catcher. So, you're watching all these Mets games, he grew the assumption, kind of like how pitchers always hit ninth. Yes. The catcher always hits ninth. Ah, well, why would a catcher not hit ninth? And I explained that some teams – like the team they're about to face too, they have catchers that are actually good hitters. It must have been during the Braves series because obviously between Contreras and Darnold, oh, right. they have some hitters. But he, he had asked me, um, hey, Dad, we should sit in the outfield one game. And I said, okay. You know, it's better than him saying, I want to sit first row, you know, right behind the dugout. Like, nah, I'm not spoiling you that much, son. Uh, <laughs> sure, you want to go to the outfield? We'll go to the outfield. So I thought today or yesterday, depending on when you're listening to this podcast, Wednesday afternoon would be a good time to say, okay, let's go sit in the outfield. And it's a very different vantage point. I don't love it. I'm not going to sit here and tell you it's better than being behind the plate. It's not, but it was cool. Like we were in right field. So when Tyler Naquin hit that home run in the third inning, it was right above us, uh, right above our heads. Because obviously the, whatever they call that porch now, the Coca-Cola porch, or the Pepsi porch, I'm at City Field every freaking day. I have no idea what these sponsorships are. I can't even remember. <laughs> I stared it all day off. I have no idea. They change them so often anyway. It doesn't make a difference. I know. I, I don't know, man. But it was really just to get a different vantage point. And, yes, I put a video out of I think it was the Vogelbach. The Vogelbach, yes. The two-run two double and Alonzo getting
0: thrown out at home. But, yes. Yes. A great video. Yes. Great video, by the way.
1: Thank you. I got very lucky with that video. But, yeah, it was just a chance to shake it up, get a different vantage point. But this was great. I mean, you ta- there were a lot of kids at the ballpark. You take your kid to the ballpark, you'll want to see your team win. And I make a reference because, you know, why not? I took him to, like, eight Brooklyn Net games this year. And Hoff, they would lose every freaking time I would take him. And he would say to me, they're not any good. And I'd say, well, they're better than... And meanwhile, he was right. They weren't any good, obviously. But at the time... I'm like, no, they're actually good. It's just we happen to pick the wrong days. We're just going to the games where they get their ass kicked. So there's a little extra special when you take a kid to the game that they actually win. And lately they've been winning, obviously. And here's what's crazy. And I guess real quick about the finale of this series, what's there to say? Good bounce back by Taiwan Walker. That was really nice to see. The offense made it easy for him. They jump on TJ Zoic right out of the gate. Uh, Lindor continues to just be tremendous and we'll touch on him in a few minutes on the season that he's having. Um, Pete Alonzo had a great game, just offensively, not even hitting home runs. That's what's so great about Pete. Now he can give you a three or four hit game. Quinn continues to be awesome. Look, it was a, an easy sweep of the Cincinnati Reds. That's what it was. And it was great. 25 out of 27 innings. They led boom. The Mets won. Uh, what was I going to say? Was I about to say something else and I recap the game? I, I You said you were going to talk about Lindor later. I don't oh, know if you hit, hit that yeah, down. Lindor. Let's get to this guy. He's having a great season. This is There's no debate about that. He's having a great, great season. And I think for a while there were certain stats that some people are obsessed with where they'd say, but he's not having a great year because he's hitting 258. Or he's not having a great season because his OPS is 750. I think Lindor going into this Philly series, obviously, if you've watched him every day, he's been incredibly clutch. His numbers with two outs and runners in scoring position have been awesome all year. He is, it seems, has been one of their most clutch players all year long. The Atlanta series, both of them, the one in Atlanta, the one at home. But now he has all the numbers. He's breaking team records, and he gave a great answer about breaking all these team records. He said, I don't really care. I want to win a World Series. He said, that's the record I care about. That's got to be music to all of our ears. So now I think where Lindor is in the middle of August is he's kind of ended any debate about what kind of season he's had. Is that a great, great season. And that doesn't mean we should go back to debating the contract or the trade or what they gave up, because all that stuff's irrelevant now. It really doesn't matter. What matters is that he's here. He's coming off what was an awful year one that goes right up there with the other awful year ones of New York trade and or free agent signees that come with big expectations. But the best part is in year two, he's done what Carlos Beltran did. He's having a great year. And here's the part as a Met fan that you really have to love. If there is a big spot in a big moment, you want him up. I'm not saying he's the number one guy on your list. I think we can go back and forth about that. There'll be some who say Jeff McNeil. I kind of lean towards Jeff McNeil, believe it or not. There'll be some who say Pete Alonso. There may be some who say Brandon Nimmo. It's great that we can debate four or five guys, but you are not afraid to have Francisco Lindor up in a big spot. And that's where we are with him. 270, for all you batting average people, which I've moved on from in my life, I still think 300 is like a cool accomplishment. And I still think winning a batting title is a cool accomplishment. But I do agree. I'm not living and dying on a guy's batting average. 270, 20 home runs, 81 RBI, 80 freaking 1 RBIs. I know you need guys on base in front of you, so it's a stat that relies on others, but you still have to drive them in. And now he's got the OPS above 800, which I think is like, let's get it there. Here's what Lindor's doing this season. He's doing what his career numbers said he should be doing. And that was the concern I had for the last two years that Lindor had a bad 2020. Okay, who cares? Weird season, pandemic. Had a terrible 2021 and got off to. He actually got off to a good start. Then he cooled off and had like the over 22. But over a period of time of 2020, 2021, and the first month and a half of 2022, you had a baseball player that didn't have good numbers for an extended period of time. And I looked at his career numbers and said, well, we just need him to be that. He doesn't need to be better than that. I'm not expecting Francisco Lindor to morph into somebody he's not. I just want that guy. And here's what we have, Mets fans. We have that guy. Nothing better. Nothing worse. We have that guy. And that guy is fine. That's the guy the New York Mets traded for. And that's the guy we're getting right now. And he's also comfortable here, you could tell. And I don't know if it was getting rid of Javier Baez or just the winning. You know, sometimes winning just cures all. And this is a Met team that's been winning from the get-go. And speaking of which, right now, in the middle of August, in a season in which they are on pace to win well over 100 games, right now they're playing their best baseball. Because if you look at how they've gotten to this point, which is 72 and 39 or 73 and 39, I think we're 73, 73 and 39, 112 games in to this season, they are off to their second best start in the history of the franchise. Only 1986 is better. And by the way, they were 75 and 37, which means the Mets are two games behind the pace of the greatest team in the history of the franchise. Are they going to win 108 games? I don't know. And I think there's going to come a point where that doesn't matter. It's going to be winning in the postseason. But they are off to their second best start in franchise history. And right now, they're playing their best baseball. Because they've gotten here by being good and never bad. Like, think about it. When were the Mets at their worst this season? When did they play their worst baseball? I don't mean to pick on the Yankees. When have the Mets played what the Yankees are doing right now? The Yankees are really, really struggling. Pete, is there an answer to that? Because they've never played this bad. Uh,
0: I, I know two series, which I wasn't happy with, it was against San Diego, both series there. But I guess like the, the
1: West Coast trip, but even that wasn't that bad. Dude, it was 5-5. Like, and five. We, Yeah, we escaped. That, that's what's kind of crazy about what they've accomplished, but it's also why they are 73 and 39. They have had big portions of the season. In fact, I'd say most of the season where they haven't dominated, where they haven't had a stretch like this, where they've won. I mean, going back to the finale of the San Diego series, do the math on it. It's 14 out of 16, I think it is, 15 out of 17, whatever it is. We could sit here and just add it up together if we want, but it's a great, great run. They haven't had a stretch like that. But what they've done, and I'm looking at their baseball reference schedule, is win three out of five, win six out of eight, win eight out of 15. Like, they haven't had bad stretches. Like, I would say their worst stretch. Here it is. Let me give you their worst stretch of the season. They split the last two games against the Marlins, lost two in a row to Houston, won two out of three in Miami, lost two straight to Houston. Yeah, man, what is that? You know what that is? a 2-5 and stretch. What? Okay. They lost 5 out of 7. Like, okay, the San Diego series at home. They had lost the finale against the Cubs before the break and then the first two against San Diego. Okay, but around that, they were constantly winning. So you can't even pick that stretch as their worst stretch of the season. Like, there literally isn't a bad stretch that the Mets have had other than Hey, they lost five out of seven and they can't beat the Astros. Dude, that's remarkable. And that's how they are where they are. And that's why a stretch like this just piles it on that, you know, they could win 105 games because they haven't had a bad stretch. Now, will they have a bad stretch? I tell you this, man, if this rotation stays healthy, I don't think they will. Because even if their offense goes quiet the way it did for a decent period of time, They pitch well enough where they may win a bunch of games anyway, where they may, you know, squeak out a couple of two to one victories. But that's the part of this team. That's the most impressive thing I've ever seen as a Met fan. They haven't had a bad stretch. And, you know, God willing, their bad stretch doesn't come the second week of October. Obviously, things can change then. But this is a team. And I I don't mean this as a knock on the Yankees. The Yankees are going to be fine. They're going to win the American League East. The Yankees are going through a rough stretch. And Yankee fans are going to overreact to it. And what I would tell them, maybe they don't want to hear it from me, is you're going to win the division. Every great team has a rough stretch. Get it out of the way now. Except the Mets haven't had a rough stretch. <laughs> and that's, that's mind-boggling to me as a Mets fan, that they have not had that.
0: By the way, I mean, the one thing that I think i take away from the series more than anything else is, yes, it's the Reds. Yes, the pitching was great. Hitting was great. But the biggest takeaways I think that Scherzer and DeGrom didn't have to pitch the series and we saved them for bigger series like that was like I don't know if that was perfect planning by Walter and the Mets but that worked out to our benefit huge
1: look I think that this rotation without Jake and Scherzer is pretty good because they didn't have Jake and Scherzer for two months so we already saw that when Carlos Carrasco and Chris Bassett and obviously, we didn't see David Peterson here or Trevor Williams have to start. But when Bassett, Carrasco, and Walker pitch, this is a damn good team. This was a team playing at a great base anyway. So, and that's what's going to be fun about the Philly series, which we'll preview in a few minutes. But I tweeted something out before we started this podcast. And it's, it's something I said on the Rico Bronia with you a couple of days ago. And something I said on the air the other day, because I truly mean it. And that is in my lifetime. And you can imagine people parsing that word. In my lifetime, this is the best Mets team I've seen. Doesn't mean they're going to win the World Series. Doesn't mean they're going to get to the World Series. I get it. The 2015 team got to World Series. That was my lifetime. The 2000 team got to World Series. That's my lifetime. I'm talking about right now. I can't win a World Series in August. And yes, I acknowledge that anything can happen in the postseason. So I knew I would get a lot of tweets of, well, I haven't won anything. Of course they haven't won anything. It's August. You can't win anything in August. But right now, when you look at this Met team, they're better than any Met team we've seen in my lifetime as a fan, which begins in about 1991, because the first tweet I saw was from Indie Rock Sucks, and Indie Rock Sucks wanted to be literal. <laughs> According to your Wikipedia page, you were born in 1983. 1983 which means 1986 was during your lifetime. So I guess you mean one that you remember. That's of course what I meant. My lifetime as a baseball fan, not when I was born. Like I don't remember 1983 or 1984 or 1985 or 19. 19- I honestly don't remember anything until about 1990. I don't remember anything until I was seven. Is that fair for you the same way?
0: Yeah, that's about the same with me, too. I don't remember them until they really started sucking, to be honest with you. <laughs> that's really where I was like, oh, this team is, why do we let this team, dead? I don't, I don't get it. They won a World Series? What? <laughs>
1: uh, so I'm going to read some of these responses. First of all, before I read any of the responses, Pete, you're a little bit older than me. Not a
0: lot. Though. By a like year. You were too older?
1: A year. a year. Yeah, so One we're the same.
0: Like, a, yeah.
1: You don't remember 1986, correct? No. Not at all. You don't remember 1988, correct? No. Okay. No, I don't. So we are dealing with the same life cycle. Yes. Am I right to say, and again, playoffs, anything can happen, but am I right to say this is the best Met team we've ever seen?
0: I I think the only one that's debatable, there's only one team I think is debatable. Go ahead. It's 2006. I think that team was special. I think they were on the cusp of... I mean, they didn't win it but I feel like that team, the trades they made, people they brought in, I'm like, wow, this is this is something here. This team is very comparable, if not better. Um, I think the pitching staff clearly is better now. But then the pieces that they they brought in at the deadline I think are doing a job that is like a Sean like like to me right now, like what Nakwood reminds me of is a Sean Green. I feel like that's that's pretty comparable. Um and I so so you look at you look at the team and you go, they brought in the right pieces and that, that makes it work. And again, you're right, when it comes down to it, what they're doing on the field, how they play, it's 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 incredible. Day in, day out.
1: So so two thousand and six is interesting because the rest of the league sucked. And I think we always take that into account. Like The New York Mets of 2006 were the biggest favorites to win the National League pennant of any Met team, again, in our lifetime, because they weren't favorites in 99 or 2000 or 2015. But in 2006, the rest of the league was terrible. It it just was. And I think that played a big part into us looking at that team as maybe better than what they actually were. You know, they had a really good lineup, that 06 team, and they had a really good bullpen. Their rotation left a lot to be desired. And and look, they went to the postseason with a rotation that was very different than the rotation they had for a bulk of the regular season. They were planning on El Duque being the game one starter, and then he's jogging in the outfield, pulls a hamstring. We never see him again. But I think back to that 6 team, and while game seven is as devastating a loss as one could have, I don't think they were that good. I don't. I think that they benefited from a league that was very, very down. Very, very down because forget about the team that beat them in the NLCS—an 82, 83 win team in the St. Louis Cardinals. Who else was good? The San Diego Padres that year, the Dodgers, who they disposed in three games. Like that was a re- that was as bad a league as I remember. And I- I'm not complaining. The Mets benefited from it; they won the National League. Eastern Division title by a million games, not the best record by a lot. Great, that's fantastic. Unfortunately, they couldn't take advantage of it. That was the biggest problem. Right,
0: but, right, but 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 again, you look at the, I, I just look at the, the players on the team too. Like it felt like a juggernaut offensively. Offensively, like I, yes.
1: Did,
0: yeah, I, I'll I'll I will not debate the the pitching staff was the lackluster, which is the reason why. You know, 07 they couldn't close that. 08 they couldn't close that. There were so many reasons why they couldn't continue to get back but, to the playoffs. But this, years, to
1: years. But think about this team right now. And look again, the numbers are the numbers. They're on pace to win over 100 games. There've only been three 100-win teams in Met history, and all of them are prior to our lifetime. 88, 86, 69. They have a bullpen that, while we may not trust, features the most dominant closer in the sport by a lot. That's what Edwin Diaz is right now. He's the most dominant closer in baseball, and it ain't close. It features two aces at the top of the rotation and really a really good one through five, and then an offense that has been productive, an offense that's very tough to strike out, an offense that's very tough to pitch to, an offense that features a mix of star powers and then excellent platoons. And we've seen this great production at a rough Volgo back and even Tyler Naquin, who's clearly had a bigger impact than any of us could have imagined. Because when Naquin was acquired, Vogelbach and Ruff, we knew, okay, they're replacing Dom and JD. They're going to be your DH platoon. We all knew that. I even sold you as hard as I could look at their numbers against lefties and righties. And so far, it's been great. And everybody loves it. Naquin we looked at as, he's an upgrade over Travis Jankowski. Yeah, but Pete, they're not using him like Travis Jankowski. He's become... I don't want to say an everyday player, but he's a heavy platoon player. And the way he's been hitting, he's going to play more and more because he's been crazy productive.
0: That's why I gave that Sean Green comp. I'm like, I remember Green; his defensive level was a little bit off in, in, with the Mets in 2006. I think he was a little bit more older towards the tail end of his career. But Naquin is still youthful enough. He still plays a good, solid defense, and his bat's coming alive. And yeah, you're right; they're going to they're use him. Listen, it's coming together. It it true? It, it that was one of the more underrated trades uh, the Mets did during the, uh, no Devon, doubt for sure.
1: No, I think we all underrated it. Uh, I'll read some of these yeah. tweets in response to what I don't even think is a controversial statement. I believe that they are the best Met team of our lifetime. Hopefully, it leads to you know them winning a World Series. Yeah, um, mucho aloha. Lots of season left. Evan wish they went on this run in mid September instead of mid August. <laughs> I totally understand that. I totally understand that, that you want to play your best baseball at the right time. But, look, it's a good time to do it because they've created separation in the NL East, and winning the division is important. And, look, if they continue this run, look at their next eight games. They're playing our seven, 11 games. The Philadelphia Phillies, the Atlanta Braves, the Philadelphia Phillies. If they continue to play good baseball, this division is over if they continue to play good baseball. I've been a fan since 92. This is from Angry Mr. Met. Angry Mr. Matt. I've been a fan since 92, and I'd say the 06 was better than this one. However, the pitching staff and the manager are better. Okay, well, those things are important. <laughs> I mean,
0: yeah. I mean, way to just burst your own bubble, dude.
1: <laughs> oh, man. Uh, Clara Nessis says it's too early. That's not saying much. It's Look, too early if they play 500 ball the rest of the way, they win 97 games. I mean, we're 112 games into the season. It's not too early. Like, obviously, we can't simulate October to find out what happens. But what are we talking about? There's 50 games left. You tell me that the Mets can't go 30
0: and 20, and if they do, that's what the best record of all time for the Mets. 108
1: 86. That's the the best of all time is 108 in 86. And so to do that, they'd have to go 35 and what does that add up to? Fifteen. That, that's a lot. Yeah, they're not going 35 and 15. <laughs> as all good right. as they but are. They can go, but
0: they can go 30 and 20.
1: Yeah, no, no, no. Listen, all I'm saying is they're not gonna, I don't think they're winning 108 games. I don't think they're going to beat the 86 Mets in that regard. And that's, right, by all. the way, that's fine. Uh, Metal Man, I was 9 to see the 86 Mets. And there was a special toughness about that team. They would beat the crap out of anybody at the drop of a hat. It was fun. This team, though, looks like it could top it as a baseball team. Well, okay. <laughs> the 86 Met team will beat the crap out of you. Uh, a lot of 06 mentions. Esch thirty-eight, eighty-seven. The 06 team was a damn good team. I mean, it was a good team, but I... I don't think this one was better. I don't think that one was better. I think we've overrated the 0-6 team. I really do. Um, well, who who was the pitching staff? It was it
0: was. Uh, well, during the regular John during Main. the regular
1: season or during the playoffs?
0: Well, d- during regular season, you had John Maine. You had uh, El Duque. You said right. Yeah, Steve Traxel. Um, ugh, boring. Who else was it? Well, Traxel. Pa- Pedro Martinez was, was on
1: it. He just got hurt. Tommy Glavin right. was uh, the stalwart, if you will. Right. Here, based, I mean... on, based on starts in the regular season, all right, because we all know what happened in the playoffs. Tom Glavin made every start. He made 32 starts, had a 382 ERA. Uh, Steve Traxel made 30 starts, had a 497 ERA. Ugh. Pedro made 23 starts before getting hurt, 448. Uh, no. El Duque made 20 starts, 409. John oh, made made 15 yeah. starts, 3.60. And then Oliver Perez, remember, was acquired um, at the trade deadline. Made seven starts with a 6.380 RA before he was called into duty. The rotation is on another stratosphere in terms of 06 it. versus 15 or this team. That's why, like... I think it's because they won the 97 games and they ran away with the league and they ran away with the division. That team was not as good as a lot of people like to remember. They had a great lineup, and I don't want to dismiss that, and I thought they had a really good bullpen, a deeper bullpen than this one. But that rotation in the playoffs and the regular season was blah. That's all it was.
0: I I think that that's what bothered most of us. That the next few seasons and why, like, you know, they weren't in Santana in 08, which was great, but it was already like, by that point in time, you missed the boat. Like, the offense was a juggernaut. You needed to fix that pitching and they just couldn't do it. I remember when they were trying to resell me with the season tickets. I'm like, yo, this team sucks. Get some started pitching and maybe I'll buy some more tickets. Yeah. By the by the way, you sure the balls were, balls weren't being juiced? The ones we were thrown with
1: the ERAs they had. I mean, geez, that's terrible. Everyone was in the four. Everyone was in i fours. Because you heard the names, they weren't good. Pedro <laughs> yeah. Martinez was at the end of his career. He, he had a yeah. very good 0-5. His first year here was very very good. That's why I think I mentioned to you last time about Scherzer's first year as a Met. How do you compare that to other great first years of free agent signees? Pedro was great his first year as a Met. The problem was it was all downhill after that. Tommy Glavin was like 42 years old or whatever he was. Steve Traxel is Steve Traxel. El Duque was 40. And John Mayne, you know, we didn't know how good he was. He actually had a better year the following year. Same thing with Oliver Perez. So it's not that the ball was just that they weren't that good. Uh, At behind the bag. Get to the World Series first, then we could talk. If they get upended by the Dodgers or Braves come playoff time, you'll be screaming all winter. Well, it depends. It depends how they lose to, to know if I'm screaming or not. I don't know if I'll be screaming. I may be crying. I may be upset. Like sometimes you lose in the playoffs and you're not screaming. You're sad. Um, 06 against the, you know, going back to 06. I don't think I screamed during the offseason. I think I was sad. I think I was just massively disappointed. They lost the game seven in their own building. Uh, Beltron strikes out looking. Heilman gives up thought. We, we all know what happened. Like, I don't think I spent that offseason screaming. So I think a lot of it depends on what happens. And look, here's the thing about this, this year, and a lot of it is what baseball is in 2022. There are a lot of really good teams. And the reason there are a lot of really good teams is because there's a lot of really bad teams. So you have... The Dodgers, who may win 112 games. You have the Braves, who, despite the Mets winning every night, they win every night as long as they're not facing the Mets. They they may win 98 to 100 games. You have a really loaded league, which is far different than 06. And I think a big part of it is that you've got so many really bad teams, like the Pirates, like what the Reds were at the beginning of the year, like the Cubs, like the Nationals, a lot of really bad teams. That's why as good as the Mets are, they're not catching the Dodgers for the best record in baseball because the Dodgers never lose, which is insane.
0: Um, I just get back to that final game seven. I know that you were at the stadium, but how long did it take you to get out of there? Cause I remember me, you, we, you talk about being sad, like, you make me. You give me flashbacks. Like I remember where I was. I was at a, my cousin was about to play a show down in the city. I was at the bar, ready to watch them play and perform. And they they would not start the show until the final out was was the, the game was over. And I'm watching the strike three happens. I put my head down. And I never listened to a single song. I just walked out depressed. I drove straight home and I don't know what I did the rest of the night, but I was definitely upset. How long did it take for you to get out of that ballpark? I'm curious.
1: Ah, uh, boy. It was actually really quick because as soon as Carlos struck out, I got up out of my seat, 325 low to chase standing with my dad, and immediately got the hell out of there. And it was a very eerie feeling. There are only two feelings I've had like this in sports. One is actually recent. It was the Game 7 against the Bucs with the Durant foot on the line 3. And then obviously Game 7 against the Cardinals. And what they have in common is the hear a pin drop thing, the sadness, and the like, I was floating out of the building. Like, I, I wasn't even in my body. I was so sad. And that was the word I would use. Sad. Like, just devastated by what had happened, almost shocked about what had happened. I think deep down, I thought in both games, we were going to win. You know, because there were dramatic things that happened, not to compare two different sports. And I, I know there's very few crossovers between the Mets and the Nets. But that, those two games are very similar in terms of, it felt like I got out of there really quickly. Because as soon as it was over, I'm like, get me the F out of here. And I always plan things out, Hoff, where I know how to get to my car immediately. Like, I plan exits very well. (laughs) Now, if they win, there'll be no exit. It'll just be a big party. So that was one of those games, oh seven, oh six 7 6 game 7, where it was just sadness. I remember when Shea closed. I was sad, but I was pissed. mm -hmm. Like, I was angry. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, sometimes as a sports fan, you have that. Like, 2000 was really weird. And I had mentioned this on the air because now this uh, audio clip is in our show open. That when the Yankees won the World Series in 2000, in my building, in our freaking building, there was a Yankee fan sitting next to me, this woman, who started screaming as if she was having a, you know, she was being pleased. Uh, yes. Okay? Yeah. That's how she acted when the Yankees won the World Series. And I still have that voice in my head. And I tried to imitate it on the air. So maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't. But yeah, I'm not going to do it again. All right, it was one and done. <laughs> but there was a lot of, like, excitement coming okay. out of her voice. A lot of pleasure (laughs) coming out of her voice. And it caused me a lot of pain. And so walking out of Shea Stadium in 2000 was very different than walking out of Shea Stadium in 2006. A couple of more tweets I read. King Milt, let's look at this logically. I know that's tough for sports talk radio. Oh, God. right, Right off the top, that annoys me. I don't say things because of sports talk radio. I really don't. I say things because I feel a certain way. But okay, I'll respond, King Milt. For that statement to be the case, my statement that this is the best Met team of my lifetime, they would have to at least make the World Series. That's what the 15 and 2000 teams did. Won't even mention 86. And look at this. I don't even have to respond. DS for MVP responded for me to this man. He said, <laughs> you can objectively say it now, though. The best team doesn't always win the title." The 07 Patriots were probably the best team I've ever seen, but they lost. Last year's Brave team wasn't better than a lot of teams and have lost in or before the World Series. I mean, listen, I I got a lot of you got to win a ring. The next guy I see, Vlad G, can we see a ring first? Uh, Bro, obviously, in the whole grand scheme of things, we will look at a team that went to the World Series as better in terms of accomplishment than a team that won, let's say, 102 games and got knocked out in the Divisional Series. What I think in all, on August 10th is how I feel now and what you accomplish in the regular season. I think Diaz for MVP is right on. I'd put the Warriors of 2016 and the Patriots of 2007 as two of the greatest teams I've ever seen. They didn't win. The 2001 Mariners, we kind of mocked them, but they did win 116 games. They're a great team. Obviously, as a fan, we need a championship. And I think this season is no question. They got to win. They got to freaking win. If they don't win the World Series, I'm going to be devastated. And by the way, that's not because of them and the expectations they've set. I'm too old for this shit. That's where I'm at. (laughs) Uh, No, no, I have no more. I'll tell you this. I'll, I'll take this a step further. I'll take this a goddamn step further. The New York Jets shocked the world. Shocked the world. They win 13 games. They win the AFC East, and they're in the playoffs. Do you think at any point when they lose, I'm going to say, "Wow, well, gee golly, they went further than we thought? No! I want to freaking win! I, I don't Dude, care what that... the expectations are. Win me a freaking championship. I'm going to be pissed off if they lose. <laughs>
0: uh, BT keeps on asking me, goes, oh, if they get to the, uh, the NLCS, you gotta feel good, even if they lose. No. The no, that's stupid. No, it's it's over. I'm sorry, but as a Mets fan or any fan, but for someone that hasn't seen a championship since the Rangers '94, it's a long time ago. Um, I'm so desperate. I'm i for a championship, and the Mets are the only team that I really ride and die every single freaking day of my life, even in the offseason. I'm like, what what movie gonna make? Who are they bring it in? Who's the new GM? So this is the most important championship for me. It, they have to win, and I'll, I'll do whatever it takes. I'll give away my kids. Excuse me. I don't care. Excuse me. Yes. I, well, I'll give them to, <laughs> to other people that want to take better care of you. I don't know. I just – I need a championship. I need it to happen. No, I I'll take that back. Look, whatever, i, I
1: I'll delete that. I've always said this. I said this to the Ranger fans <laughs> this past year, and they probably think I'm just being a hateful douche, and that's fine. I – you never, ever, ever say, well, it was a great year. No, no. Because you don't know when you're going to get another opportunity. And I've learned that lesson the hard way as a sports fan. That you don't know if you're ever going to be back. And I think that's why 06 with the Mets, we've talked a lot about uh, in discussing the greatness of this Met team. That's why I think that is a special, but also a bittersweet team. Because they never got back. Like, I could have sworn walking out of Shea Stadium that night they were going to get back. And that's why, and it's I'm telling you, I know people don't want to hear this, it's why it is so similar to Game 7 against the Bucs. Because I walked out of that building saying, as much as people will tell me, you'll be back. You've got Kevin Durant. You've got James Harden. You've got Kyrie Irving. They'll all be healthy next year. Now, I didn't know, obviously, what would happen, the disaster that it was between the mandate and Harden, but I walked out of that building saying, no, 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 I don't know I'll be back, and while if I said that to you the next day, you'd say you're being too negative, no, you don't know if you're going to get back. The freaking Nets are great proof of that because they're obviously not going to get back based on everything that's happened since that moment. 06, though, was where I learned that. Because, oh, David Wright's young. Jose Reyes is young. Of course they'll be back. Yeah, they were back. It took nine years to get back to the postseason, and it was a completely different team. So I don't buy this idea of, well, if they could get here, I'd be happy. No, no, no. They have to win a World Series. I've seen them in the World Series. We both have. A lot of us have. They have to win a World Series. But as I was writing that tweet, I thought to myself, should I explain I was three in 1986? Or should I let people say, 1986, you douche? And I let it go. Because I thought maybe people would realize, since I've said it 500 times on the air, I was three in 86. It doesn't count to me. I don't remember it. It's like if you were one when Jack Kennedy was shot. You don't remember him being shot. You can't talk about, well, I was in school and I thought this and that. You have no idea. You were one. I was three. No one remembers anything when they were three years old.
0: But I will say this for those people that are explaining the 86 team. If this Mets team, not saying that the record's going to be as good in the regular season, but the playoffs work out the way that we want it to be. If Max Scherzer, and DeGromer, is dominant as ever. I mean, it's, it's a possibility that they could dominate the playoffs in a way that we haven't seen ever with the pitching staff they have. <laughs> I mean, you want to go to 86 and say Gooden, and, 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 and fine.
1: Gooden was amazing. Pete, Pete. If the New York Mets yeah. can win this World Series, all right, mm. and we're mm. going to do a Rico Bronia on December 5th, mm. debating 86 versus 2022, I will gladly have that. That'll be a fun podcast to
0: do. Let's go.
1: You know what we'll do? Let's... I know exactly what we do, all right? I'm already envisioning, I, I hate to say this, If the Mets win the World Series, we'll bring on someone who represents 1969, someone who represents 1986, and then us, because we represent 2022. And we'll all debate, (laughs) hey, which one was the best? (laughs) But let's get there first. One last thing. And I appreciate the interactions on all that, uh, because it's interesting. To me, I'm just telling you how I feel. I think it's the best team I've ever seen. And hopefully it ends that way. One last thing. Keith Hernandez created a controversy during the Mets Red Series because Keith alluded to the fact that he did not want to do the Mets-Philly series. Now, the Mets and Phillies play a lot coming up. They have a three-game series this weekend at Citi Field. Scherzer versus Ranger Suarez. Jacob DeGrom versus Aaron Nola, which is a great matchup on paper. Chris Bassett against Zach Wheeler. So, obviously, with Noah Syndergaard pitching Wednesday, he misses this series at Citi Field. Uh, So it'll be a fun series. Anyhow, three-game series against Phillies. And then they play four games in Philadelphia with a doubleheader on Saturday. Next weekend, Keith said he doesn't want to do the Philly series. And his reasoning makes absolutely no sense. Keith Hernandez said he doesn't want to call the Philly games because their fundamentals suck. Now, we all know Keith's a big fundies guy, and I love it. But I've been racking my brain, and it caused major it. Like, Philadelphia's all pissed off. They're all offended. Bulletin board material. Can you believe Keith Hernandez said this? Pete, there's no way Keith Hernandez doesn't want to call a Philly series because their fundies aren't good. Why would he call the Red Series or the Pirates Series or <laughs> the National Series? Like, there are so many garbage teams in Major League Baseball. They're not even a garbage team. Yes, they're bad defensively. Yes, they've got like three DHs playing the field. We all understand that. But come on, that makes no sense. I think Keith is just
0: trolling Philadelphia, and he knew the button to push, and it was perfect. And I'm on his side because you know what? They are scrubs. And I, do, I don't I do blame Keith for that. I don't want him calling a scrub-like game. I want it to be a good – listen, this was a great series. Keith was on it. He was having fun. I don't need him to go through the debacle the that is the Philadelphia Phil, uh, Phillies.
1: I, I don't like this. The Mets and the Phillies are about to play seven <laughs> times. Like, stop. And they're also – the Phillies are playing really good baseball lately. So, but, but I'll say this real quick, because we've gone way over time on today's Rico Bronia, and we'll be back after the Phillies series on Sunday. I'll be on vacation down in North Carolina, but we're still going to record a podcast. I, I'm, I'm planning off on having the wind and the beach in the background while we record, Ooh, so we can get some ambiance. Hopefully, it'll sound okay. That's the priority. But as we talk Mets-Phillies and preview the Braves series, the plan is... I'm gonna have like a margarita in one hand, and the ocean will be at like my background. So you'll hear it. Like you'll hear the waves hitting the ground as we're breaking. Down. Will I hear? Will I hear you sipping the
0: margarita from like the if it's like the last yeah. sip? Like <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. No, no.
1: It's, it's, I'm, dude, I'm, it's vacation, Rico Bronya. I'm gonna give you Rico Bronya. We're gonna do it, but I'm gonna be on vacation.
0: Just don't be as drunk as I was. Either, <laughs> Which, by the way, you were killing me on a question. I'm like, dude, I was totally dead serious with that. I was sober, it's not sober, but I was definitely serious because I went to Twitter hours before I was drunk with that same. Oh, really? So I thought I that you
1: said something on the podcast drunk, and the truth was it was just really a thought that you had.
0: Okay, it's a, really a dumb thought. Yes.
1: <laughs> the last thing I'll say as we enter an interesting stretch of games, the Mets are about to embark on. They play three games against the Phillies, four games against the Braves four games against the Phillies, and then two games against the New York Yankees, which I, I know will make a big deal with the Subway Series. It really isn't that big of a deal. Even after they swept the Yankees, I made that pretty clear. I enjoyed it in the moment. Whatever. So they're about to play 8th, 11th, 13 games against the Phillies, against the Braves, against the Phillies, and the Yankees. The Mets have now set themselves up to just go out and play 500 baseball. That that, that literally, and I'm being honest about that, i Of course, I'd love to see them just win every single game, but I think they're on this run right now, 14 out of 16, whatever it is. They've built a 10-game lead on Philadelphia in the NL East. They have a seven-game lead on the Atlanta Braves in the NL East. When you have a lead like that, now you can run the clock out. And running the clock out means splitting. I look at that Braves series, split it. I look at the Philly series in Philly, split it. Obviously, at home, two out of three would be nice. But really, it's run the clock out. Seven-game lead, 10-game lead, 50 games to play. Obviously, you can blow a lead like that. We've seen that in 2007. <laughs> yeah. But what you need to do right now in these head-to-head matchups, forget the Yankees, I'll, I'll leave that one out. Really, the Phillies and the Braves. Split them. Just go out and maintain. When we leave the Philly Brave run, which will take place over the next week and a half, uh, Be in the same place you are now. And if you do that, I'll be happy. If you do that, I think Met fans will be happy. And you'll be well on your way to winning a National League Eastern Division Championship. Something I have only seen in my lifetime. That I've witnessed. (laughs) I've only seen that twice. 2006, 2015. It is special for us. But we will be on Rico Bronier right after the Philly Series. I'll be on the air with Joe Beningo. Me and Beningo back together again for a few days, Thursday and Friday. I'm off next week. So Craig and I'll do a show right before the Subway series. That's the next time we're going to do a show together, before Mets Yankees at Yankee Stadium. By the way, assuming everybody's healthy, Scherzer DeGrom for the two games at Yankee Stadium.
0: Mm, I'm not kidding you. Let's go. <laughs> It's been setting up nice. what they talking about. Like, they didn't have to pitch in the Cincinnati cities. They'll go up against Philadelphia. They'll pitch against the Yankees. It's beautiful. Not too shabby.
1: Thank you for listening to Rico Bronya. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.